Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now. Your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Monday, February 11th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we've got Noisy in the studio to talk about the spectacular rise and fall of America's first and potentially last rock and roll themed amusement park, Hard Rock Park. At Hard Rock Park, you could ride a roller coaster synced to Led Zeppelin's 1969 hit Whole Lotta Love, or you could see a fireworks show choreographed to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. You could go on all sorts of rides, and they were all rock and roll themed. But this 55-acre amusement park just outside Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, crashed and burned just as spectacularly as it was first built. So today we've got noisy editor Colin Joyce talking to reporter Will Cager-Smith on this strangely poetic story. Hey Will, thanks for being here. Hi Colin, thanks for having me. So the story kind of goes back to summer of 2018. I was listening to this podcast where two comedians kind of make dick jokes and review chain restaurants. And they were doing an episode about the Hard Rock Cafe. And they made this brief aside that in addition to all of these locations of the cafe and uh, hotels around the world, there was also at one point a theme park um, that bore the same name. And they moved on from that. But it stuck with me. And I was like thinking about what a rock and roll theme park would look like and did some research and there wasn't all that much out there. Uh, there some there were some photos on theme park aficionado blogs of what the abandoned site looked like. Oh yes, I discovered immediately that uh, it had been closed for 10 years. Um, so I hit up you because I thought that you might uh, be able to figure out more. What did you find and what what made it clear to you that there was a story here? So there were a few kind of news articles from back in the day when the park first closed and there was also an abundance of blogs and fan sites and that kind of thing that were hypothesizing about what went wrong with this park and there was lots of uh, dissection of its various failures and also a lot of analysis of what was really great about the park on these kind of roller coaster forums and that sort of thing. And I realized that Hard Rock Park kind of has this kind of uh, cult following, basically. And that made me, first of all, want to find out more about what happened. But I also felt like the story had a potentially had a broader relevance. The big thing that really struck me was the timing. Hard Rock Park opened and went bankrupt in 2008, which was the year the Lehman Brothers collapsed, which triggered the global financial crisis, which was kind of already happening in within the US, but Lehman collapsing is what made it go global. And that kind of made it clear to me that the money that was raised to build this park was raised during the credit boom that preceded the financial crisis. People on a lot of these forums and in these kind of stories were blaming the park's failure on the financial crisis and the impact it had on 
the amount of money that consumers had to spend and the price of gas and that kind of thing. But that kind of seemed like a slightly convenient reason for the park to fail. So I felt like maybe there was more to it than that. You know, like we built this great park and maybe if it weren't for the crisis, it would have been fine. But regardless of whether you believe the financial crisis killed the park or not, the extent to which you believe that, it's undoubtable that the crisis created it. Like it would not exist if it weren't for the epic boom in credit that preceded and in many ways led to the financial crisis. And we're over 10, just over 10 years after the financial crisis. And there's this growing sense that we could now be standing on the cusp of a, another economic downturn. And as I looked back at the story of the park, I felt like there was potentially a broader relevance to it today, to the economic situation that we find ourselves in. After you kind of had those top level findings, you decided that you wanted to go down to Myrtle Beach and talk to some of the people that had worked there and were involved with the the making of it. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that trip and what you found when you were down there at the site? Yeah, so this was my first time in South Carolina, actually. Definitely my first time in Myrtle Beach, but my first time in the South proper. And it was kind of unlike any other place I've been in America. It's basically the entire town is is completely dependent on tourism. And you can really tell that from being around, especially at the time that I went down there, which was in November last year. It was so it was pretty dead. Yeah, it was super quiet and really kind of sleepy. And it just had this feeling like everyone was kind of hunkering down for the winter, which is the down season. And I was staying in a really cheap hotel right next to the boardwalk on the beach. And it was right next to this beachside amusement park. And that was closed. The boardwalk was deserted. I met up with the photographer who was also called Will in a kind of dive bar not too far from the boardwalk. And that was completely empty apart from these these two locals who were just kind of having a chat and we got talking to them and they told us that we were basically three blocks away from Myrtle Beach's red light district. <laughs> it's this place called um, Yorpon Drive, I think. Yorpon Road or Yorpon Drive. So there was this kind of feeling that this is a place that kind of thrives when tourists are around in high season, but there's also this kind of underside of it that is never really that far away. And then visiting the park against that backdrop kind of made the visit even more sort of poignant because it's this kind of story of juxtapositions of before and after of optimism and then failure. I was really struck by some of your description of the park itself, just like of of a person fishing in the area. And that was like... literally the first thing I saw <laughs> when I when I walked through the arch. This guy just standing there in a baseball cap fishing from this bridge over the lagoon. There was like no one else around. That's so funny. Can and... you talk about what else you saw in this? So all of the rides and stuff are gone, right? Yeah, all the rides are gone. Most of the more temporary buildings like restaurants and that kind of thing they're also gone there's still some structures there like the entry plaza and uh, a big warehouse at the back Um, so there are buildings kind of dotted around but all of the saleable assets basically have gone they they got sold off for, for parts essentially so driving to the park from downtown Myrtle Beach you drive up freeway 501 you turn off next to this kind of old defunct mall that I think was built in the 80s called Whackamore Pottery you come off the freeway and the sign is still there for Freestyle Music Park, which is Hard Rock Park's second incarnation after the bankruptcy. 
and you drive into this huge vast car park it's completely overgrown it's just enormous and it's covered in rubber marks from people doing donuts on their bikes <laughs> and cars and that kind of thing and we met up with uh Jim and Shana who are two people that used to work at the park and the first thing that happened was we talked to a local who lived around the area who advised us to just be careful around this area because she sometimes heard gunshots and literally as soon as she said that the first thing that happened was we heard a gunshot kind of ring out over the park it was really strange being in there because it was almost completely deserted apart from this guy fishing from the bridge over the water we met a couple of teenagers just horsing around and breaking stuff inside the park but on the whole we were basically the only people there and it was just eerie almost completely silent apart from the wind kind of rustling through the the grasses that were sprouting everywhere out of these flower beds and the whole place just had this weird sense of just loss basically that it was this thing that Jim and Shana were talking about with such enthusiasm but there was just nothing there. How does that differ from the way that the park used to be? Like what were they excited about? There was just so much stuff there that was so completely wacky. There was a huge roller coaster called Led Zeppelin the Ride that was 150 foot tall. It had this entry building where you climbed up and it was like you were getting into an actual airship and you boarded the train inside the airship and then it cranked you up the lift hill to the sound of whole lot of love by led zeppelin and then you went down into the first loop in the breakdown and then the song kind of played as you were going all the way around the around the ride there was this ride in a big dark warehouse at the back of the property called Nights in White Satin, the trip that was this sort of psychedelic ghost train kind of thing that was almost a a recreation of an LSD trip. And there were all these other music-themed rides. There was one called Life in the Fast Lane that was an Eagles-themed ride. There was a water ride called Reggae River Falls. Just all these tiny little details, like if you're walking from one end of the park to the other or in the kind of circuit through all the different zones... They had music piped everywhere. But as you were moving from one zone to the other, the style of the music would change seamlessly. So it would play Like a Prayer by Madonna, the original, as you were going from the rock and roll heaven area. And as you went towards the Reggae River Falls ride, it would turn into a Calypso version of the same tune without switching at all. It would just seamlessly transition. It's such a such an ambitious concept for something that, like, in my mind, when I hear, like, rock and roll theme park it could easily have just been so kitschy and- right they they really went for it like every little detail was so specific and the, the theming just extended to absolutely every corner of the park and now there's nothing like less than a ghost town <laughs> and now there's yeah it's just kind of it's faded it's crumbling there's this amazing building at the back where the ghost train was and if you walk in there it's just it's pitch black and the air is just kind of choked with mold and on the front of that warehouse in this area that used to be called the punk pit which is right next to the british invasion section there's these kind of uh 80s style smiley faces on the front of the warehouse <laughs> that are kind of just completely faded like there are all these amazing vistas within the park that just looked so faded and um i think the anyway. question the question for me is like 
what happened exactly. I know, I know right, we talked right. about the, the financial crashes role in it and you get really into the nuts and bolts of what that means in the article, but in like a top level way for people who don't know anything about this stuff, like me, <laughs> like what happened? So basically they borrowed too much money. No one was willing to give these guys enough equity, basically cash in exchange for an ownership stake in the park to build the park. So they borrowed a lot of money and because it was a risky project, an untested concept and in a slightly difficult area, very far from the beach, that kind of thing, the interest rates on the money they borrowed were very high. So that meant they basically had no margin for error if the park didn't meet their expectations when it came to performance and attracting visitors. And because they'd taken out so much debt, that meant they were also accountable to their lenders and exposed to the whims of the market. So when the park didn't perform as they had hoped, didn't meet these very ambitious expectations that they had set for it, lenders wanted to restructure their terms with the park to make sure that they could maybe get paid back over a longer amount of time. And that's why they filed for bankruptcy to talk about this restructuring and reorganization of the business plan with lenders. But that process coincided with the financial crisis and markets had frozen up at that point. No one was really willing to do any kind of investment like this. There was this kind of uh, liquidity crunch where the money and the funding just wasn't available. And unfortunately, that coincided with the knock-on effects of the crisis, which was that people had less money to spend and that made them less likely to come to the park. How do you think that the the framing of the park as a rock and roll park specifically helped or hurt its chances in the climate that it existed in? So the creators of the park actually went through a few different iterations of the concept before they landed on the idea of a hard rock park. It basically grew out of this small property that John Binkowski, the guy who created it, owned, and he wanted to build a amusement park next to it to attract more visitors to that theater and they went for a generic theme first and then they went through one that was movie themed in partnership with mgm studios and then they eventually landed on a hard rock park and a park themed around rock music and they really went for it and they clearly had a lot of confidence in the hard rock brand and the credibility that would give to the project and also in the kind of creative concept that they were pursuing they really thought it would attract people it seems like that kind of gave them maybe a little bit too much confidence they didn't really think through the marketing of the park and they thought that the brand would bring more people than it did they had this kind of build it and they will come attitude towards it they didn't take into account the fact that Myrtle Beach is a tourist town that thrives on the kind of cross-pollination of all these small resorts and that kind of thing with each other. They were this park that was away from the beach. It wasn't in the thick of things. They wouldn't get much passing traffic. The ticket price was too high. There were a lot of kind of missteps in terms of marketing the park, but it really felt like they truly believed in the concept and what they had created. They thought it was just amazing enough on its own that it was going to attract all of these diehard rock and roll fans. 
I think one of the things that you point out in the article that underscores that is that one of the ways that they did market it was by uh, renting or buying one of the original Magical Mystery Tour vans. They did. They rented, I believe it was the last remaining Beatles Magical Mystery Tour bus, and they rented it and they toured it around the country in 2007 to promote the park. They went on a kind of tour around a bunch of cities around the sort of the south and the yeah, I guess the the southeast kind of region. It's, it's hard to imagine the intended emotional response for that. Like, if I see if I see that bus, am I going to be like, "Cool, now I want to go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina"? <laughs> yeah, see, it's because it, it's kind of cool in and of itself, but there's no sort of call to action or anything like that. It just, uh, yeah, and it, it feels very very pre-crisis. Like 2007 was the time when the crisis was really starting to percolate but there was still this kind of lingering optimism from this huge boom that we'd had. So just these crazy ideas, they, they had this money to pursue these, Let, these ideas. Let's fucking go for it. Yeah, exactly. We only talked about this yesterday, but it, in that way it parallels the fire Festival stuff that's been in the news. The like, let's just like go for it and be legends, you know? <laughs> it is. It's this kind of blind faith in the attraction of what you're producing, that you're making something so cool that it's just going to be the best thing ever. The kind of difference between Fire Festival and Hard Rock Park is that Fire Festival had loads of people coming and they had nothing to offer them when they arrived. But Hard Rock Park spent nearly $400 million building this amazing facility and putting all of this time into the creative and everything. They had this this beautiful thing that they created and no one came to see it. <laughs> So after like reporting this whole story, are there any like big takeaways from it for you? Like what can we learn from what is quoted as like one of the biggest and fastest failures in theme park history? I'd kind of circle back to one of the things that got me interested in this story in the first place, which is that it's 10 years after the financial crisis. This project, Hard Rock Park, in many ways tells the story of the crisis. It's a kind of microcosm of what happened in in 2008 and the years running up to it it's 10 years after that we've had this huge economic boom over the last 10 years or so and things have massively rebounded and then some economically speaking but it seems like we are once again standing on the kind of precipice of potentially another downturn or very least a period of slower economic growth this is exactly the kind of period 10 years ago where these kind of projects were being financed. No one would have lent Hard Rock Park money to build what they did if it wasn't 2006, if it wasn't the peak of this kind of pre-crisis boom. And over the past few years, you've seen a lot of companies raise money. A lot of them have raised equity funding, which is fine because that's people giving the money. They don't have to pay that back. But there are a lot of investors that are looking after our pensions and that kind of thing that are lending money to companies that just don't make any money based on the expectation that they're going to grow and become this fantastic revolutionary thing. And that's what happens when you're in a period of really strong economic growth. These more audacious ideas come to the surface. Hard Rock Park just happened to be spectacularly audacious rather than just audacious so i think there's a lot we can learn from looking back at this story and kind of seeing the parallels with where we are today 
So the point is that there will be more ruins for you to explore in 10 years. Maybe. Maybe. We will have to see. <laughs> you can read the full story at noisy.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.